KOPN Columbia. This is Radio Orbit 89.5 FM. I'm an addict for the mathematics. It's the magic of the galactic. That is a tragic, it's automatic. When you're tuned in, illumined, shrooming, enlightened, humid. In the womb of the universal loop, check the boom of the base. The moon is the place where the space calculates. In the months and the blunts as you pass it. So the passage of the moment, not like the Roman calendar. So I'm omen. I'm honing on the droning of the stars late night like Conan. O'Brien, O'Brien points the way. The deer is like the Mayan. Flying higher than a lion in Zion. My ball like a lion. Tap in the diet. Frequency, frequency. E equals MC. Chronic, atomic, shamanic, tonic, divided, demonic. Energy, growing up like Kennedy. Made in y'all like Kenneth Kennedy. Made in y'all like Kennedy. Can't you see that the clock is the enemy? Not mentally. Cause you're obstructed by an entity. Also known as constructive identity. This is not how it was meant to be. So take back your own destiny. After logically speaking, my sound wave is speaking, just a beacon. In a solar light sequence, burning of the heathen, share a sack of the Shiva. My light I send into pi r squares when I'm in the area. Rainbow photon space carrier, shining through the barriers. Divine light is here to take care of ya. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, chakra. You could get the Nizala to a haka. Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Cosmic pulse, all resonating. With mathematical practice, we use a magical mattress to jump up and down. I like a string fluctuating. I bring the levitron solving problems, equation writing lyrical swings. This is a frequency, tuned into the scene like my main Jimmy in synchronicity. With the tunes that are earthly, exposing the suffocation. With an equinox pursuing blue ego, hurling creativity. Looking to the science to understand trigonometry, linking chakra chains to express everything. The beauty of life, like if I will draw your life with a field of magnetic attractive information. Illustrious illuminating fractal space station, it all has an equal and opposite reaction. Balancing checkbooks, pushing weights in fractions. With the algebra, the salvia, a mountain guy, and will resurrect your particles, dissolve energy to the level of intensity. Calculus and mystical arts, what about the laws? Make believe lands in your heart. Getting worked up over something because if it was nothing, the void would always be empty. Not by the forces, of course, a horse is a magical creature like you and me. With celestial blessings and the constellations, arithmetic, take a look again to see a difference. Writing tenuous patterns with sequences of prophecies and sets me free to rock and weave back and forth funky. Look to a theological, geological, O down, brother, OG on the lowdown. We don't show down with the pronoun because we're profound and we go round with the merry, who's the merry, barely with the very, very cherry, cherry, fairly, nearly, all the wearly, very merry, but carely with marrow's wings and tarot beans for tarot seeds and cereal beans. So cereal beans, fuck, goes the weasel and the easel paintings, architecture to massage therapy. Favorite show healing from Shiatsu to Sweden. We're always educating and I always support the hierarchy, spreading the wealth lyrically as the bearers my three heads defend the underworld. See?
Resonant Sun. The song is called 13. Mike Hagan, it's Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And it's about six minutes after 11 p.m. on the 28th of August. Almost the end of summer. You can almost feel it in the air tonight, actually, walking around downtown Columbia. A little bit of a chill in the air tonight, actually, even down here in Missouri. So, anyway, hi to everybody. Uh, it's Mike. Thanks to Debbie, first of all, and uh, wonderful stuff as always. Isaac Asimov this week and the last couple of weeks on Free Range Radio Theater. You can always hear Debbie an hour before me on KOPN with Free Range Radio Theater at 10 p.m. every Monday night. Before that, we always have Kelvin and Jason. Jazz plus blues equals big question mark. Uh, tech Radio before that. Jeff Wheeler. With Common Light, starting things off from 3 to 5 p.m. we got a little bit of news in between things there. But always interesting and fun stuff going on, KOPN Mondays. And I love to be here and part of the whole scene. So, all right, fun show last week. Big thanks to everybody who participated. Tonight we have John Major Jenkins, our friend and uh, the wonderful author of Maya Cosmogenesis 2012, among other books. He's been on the program a couple of times before. And... Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, as a matter of fact, John called in and wished us uh, a nice evening on the birthday show back on the 14th. He and uh, Jay Widener actually uh, chatted for a little while together. It was really interesting, as a matter of fact. So anyway, if you missed it, as always, it's on the web, www.mikehagan.com. Uh, the archives are there, and the music archives are there as well. So if you're interested in the music that you're hearing, you can check all that stuff out on the web at mikehagan.com and just figure out a way to get to the program archives or the music. All right. Okay, as I said tonight, John Major Jenkins will be talking about Maya cosmology. What is it? What is all this business of 2012? We'll be talking about shamanism and the end of history. And we'll do the standard uh, this first hour. We'll do space weather, maybe some news, maybe take some questions off the, uh, off the chat room, perhaps. We'll see. And we'll mix in some wonderful and appropriate music throughout the evening. And the music, thanks to a tip from my friend, Dennis, as a matter of fact. We started things out, as I said, with a song called 13. This band is called Resonant Sun. We'll hear at least one more from them tonight, but I've got a whole bunch of different stuff that's a collection of music being shared over at uh, Tortuga, T-O-R-T-U-G-A dot com. And that's a website, I think, that's actually associated with, uh, with uh, Dr. Arguez, with Jose Arguez. Uh, at any rate, uh, Tortuga, T-O-R-T-U-G-A dot com. There's a whole bunch of stuff over there, including free digital versions of uh, Mayan calendars and that sort of thing. Thirteen moon calendars if you're, if you're interested in, in converting things like uh, the, the Gregorian calendar over to sort of Mayan time or natural time or synchronic time as we talk about or as Jose Arguez talks about. Another, you know, uh, I would love to have him on the show. He has written many, many things, you know, in the past but this one book that I've read of Jose Arguez in particular, is called Time and the Technosphere. And man, oh man, that is just a mind buster. So anyway, uh, Jose Arguez involved, I think, over there at Tortuga.com, and they've done a wonderful job of collecting some great independent music, a lot of it inspired by these ideas of uh, the Maya and the long-count calendar 
and the galactic alignment coming up in the year 2012 or thereabouts. There's a little bit of controversy over when the actual thing occurs, but the bottom line is we're getting very close, and it's more like a window uh, as far as I'm concerned, and uh, you know we're about to pass through it. So at any rate, going to be fun uh, music and talk tonight. John Major Jenkins and a bunch of great music from over there at Tortuga.com. So that's what you got in for you, all right? And one more time, thanks to Dennis for pointing me over there uh, uh, to that music. It's great stuff. All right, so stick around. I'll throw something else on here for you. And give you another taste of some of this music. Let me get my ducks straight, and I'll be back in a few minutes. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, and it's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM.
Alright. Howdy, back everybody at you. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia. And here we are, about 11.15. That's more music that I was lucky enough to come across over there at Tortuga.com. And you know what? Uh, I've been embarrassed to say this throughout that whole song, but I only know that song as Track 5. So there you have it, Track 5. And in a few minutes, I'll play Track 12. (laughs) I have no idea who it is. I'll find out for you, and I'll put it up on the web. But it's great stuff. And uh, more to come from a number of different bands and individuals that are putting up great music over there and sharing it with people over at Tortuga.com. So I appreciate the work that's being done. As always, uh, people doing their art and sharing it. I love it. And I'm going to try to make a connection with the people that are uh, that are putting all this together over there. So, again, thanks to Dennis for pointing it out to me. And we'll hear more throughout the night, okay? Okay, everybody, thank you for the nice emails and the support over the last few weeks. Hello to everybody listening over the web, live or otherwise. We are streaming right now and every week, every Monday night via Cosmic Waves Radio. You can find that on the web at www.cosmicwavesradio.com. Thanks to all the guys and the girls over there that make it happen for us every Monday, live on the net. Thanks also to Larry, my friend, and the web wizard, as always, doing great stuff. Although we're still having a bit of trouble with security over there on the forum, we do have a backup now as well, and uh, the address for those interested for the backup forum is radioorbit.3site, the number three, that is. So it's radioorbit.3site.ca, and that's my friend Paul helping us out there. So I appreciate it. I'll repeat that once or twice throughout the program if you want to bookmark that, and we'll also put a link up on the front page uh, of my site over at mikehagan.com, but if the site goes down, you won't be able to see the link. So I would advise you write it down. I'll say it one more time. It's radioorbit.3site.ca. And that's Radio Orbit with just one O, if you all remember from way back. Okay, to all the people out there sending art and music, as I say, awesome, every week. I love it. Send more, more, more. I love it, and I appreciate it. And for all of you, I'm sorry if I haven't played stuff or you haven't heard me play stuff. I may have. Uh, I, I haven't been able to... Uh, I haven't been really great about notifying everybody that I've played on the program because uh, there are shows when I'll just mix a whole bunch of different music and not really feature one particular artist. And in those cases, I'll play single tracks, two tracks off of maybe a CD that was sent to me, and I don't always necessarily contact the artist. But I uh, apologize for that. I'll get better at getting all of this information up on the web. So if I play any of your music whatsoever, I'll have a link to you and information about you and your music. And I promise uh, to make a better effort at at doing that because there are lots of people that are sending wonderful stuff in here. And um, most of the people get mentioned, I think, on the air, but there are certainly some that I probably haven't, and I apologize for that uh, in in advance and uh, in regression. All right. All right. Thanks uh, also to... Uh, everybody who's been hanging with us over on the web, all right? We've got things worked out for the most part. We're not going to do any registration anymore. Um, just go over to the website, MikeHagan.com, and you'll have access to everything we're doing. The guys from Yachai have still agreed to make their entire CD Sweet Mother Mercy available. You don't need any passwords or, or uh, uh, log-on IDs right now, at least, uh, in order to get to the program archives or the music archives. And so just... 
pop on over there and peek around and let us know what you think, okay? We have lots of other projects in the works, including another project that I've mentioned once or twice with Yachai. Their most recent uh, effort is something they call the Insect Sessions, and that's coming real soon, and we'll do a special thing when that comes out. Anyway, there's lots of stuff happening and lots of things on the web that you can find to uh, interest you and your friends, maybe. All right, one more time, I want to thank Paul from the Three Site Network for giving us uh, a little backup for our own little forum. And if you're interested, you can pop on over there to Radio Orbit, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T dot three site. That's the number three, S-I-T-E dot C-A. All right. He's providing a nice backup forum for us to gather if anything serious ever happens over at our site. And it's a great gesture. And as I said uh, last week and again, we thank him for his generosity. All right. We'll get a link up, as I said, but in the meantime, bookmark that. All right. Okay, my email address, as always, orbitradio at aol.com, the website www.mikehagan.com, and the phone number here in the studio, if you'd like to give me a call when we take a break, is 573-874-5676. All right? All right, let's see. It's about 20 after 11. Let's talk about upcoming guests real fast, and then we'll play a little bit more music and come back, do space weather, and see what I uh, see what else we have time for uh, for the rest of the hour, okay? All right, as I said, tonight, John Major Jenkins, the author of Maya Cosmogenesis 2012, among many other books. You can find a link to John's website right at the front page of mine, and there's a nice little write-up uh, and description of some of the work that John has done over the years up there on the front page. And he's a wonderful guy and a very interesting and intelligent and scholarly a man who's done an amazing life's work uh, studying and trying to understand uh, and help us understand what the ancient Maya were talking about when they developed their calendrical system uh, and their entire cosmology of how the world worked, in their opinion. So we'll speak with John for a couple hours, beginning at midnight, and we'll have him until the end of the program. We'll talk about Maya cosmology and everything else associated with that. And he's one of the best when it comes to it. So that's coming up. And uh, it'll be just in 40 minutes or so. All right. Following that, next week, on Sunday afternoon, we will be having a special webcast with Jeff Stray. And you may have heard me speak on the air about Jeff Stray once or twice. You probably heard um, John and Jay Widener speak about Jeff Stray last week when they were talking uh, to one another. Oh, actually, it was two weeks ago, back on the 14th. But anyway, that's going to be a, uh, a show that will be noon on Saturday, Central Time. So it's 5 o'clock in England, where Jeff is, and it'll be 2 o'clock on the East Coast, and it'll be about uh, 10 o'clock. I'm sorry, it'll be uh, 1 o'clock on the East Coast, and it'll be 10 a.m. on the West Coast here in the States. All right, so if you're interested, it'll be a two, at least a two-hour webcast with Jeff Stray live from England, and he's right on top of this whole 2012 phenomenon as well, and we'll have a, a great time speaking to him for the first time. I've never had Jeff on the program before, so looking forward to that coming up next Sunday. Okay, that's the 3rd of September, and Jeff's website is... Uh, I'll, I'll just read it on the air here real fast because people can take a look over there. And maybe I'll post it over on the chat, uh, uh, in the chat room in a second here. Anyway, it's www.diagnosis2012.co.uk. And uh, 
one more time, Jeff Stray, on Sunday afternoon at noon on the 3rd of September. The next day, a week from today, the 4th of September, we'll have Jay back on the air, Jay Widener, and he requires no introduction these days, doing wonderful work, and a lot of the work that he's doing is in association with John Major Jenkins and with Jeff Stray. Both of them participated in Jay's most recent production, Odyssey 2012, which we spoke about a little bit on the air a couple weeks ago with both of them. So anyway, Jay Widener coming up next Monday. Also, I'm going to do a special with a local gentleman here. His name is Aaron Hunsley, and he's a, a theater buff and a writer and an actor and a producer of theater theater and also radio theater. I met him through Debbie Johnson, who does the program before mine, uh, Free Range Radio Theater. And Aaron's really cool and uh, does uh, great work around town here. And he's involved in a production of a production of Macbeth uh, at a place called the Maplewood Barn Theater, and that's coming up uh, in September here. Anyway, we're going to talk with uh, with Aaron about the Curse of Macbeth. If you don't know what it is, you'll find out in a week. All right. So next week, as I said, Aaron Hunsley, a local favorite here in Columbia, doing great work in theater. Uh, both uh, on the stage and on the radio. And Jay Widener, of course, uh, one of our favorite guests here on the program, will be back uh, for the second and uh, third hour of the program next week. Okay? All right, on the 11th of September, Richard K. Moore, the author of Escaping the Matrix, amazing stuff. We'll talk to Richard about what's happening in the political scene. We don't do it very often, but when I do, I like to talk to Richard because he has a great perspective in, you know, uh, of as well as you can at least these days, I think, uh, as anyone. So anyway, that's coming up on the 11th of September. On the 18th, Kevin and Matthew Taylor, authors of Land of No Horizon. We'll talk about hollow earth theories. Dr. Alan Goldstein coming back on the, on, on the program soon. Dale Pendell, G. Edward Griffin, Jim Beard, Dr. Roland Griffiths, and uh, who knows who else. So all that coming up, and I can't wait to... Uh, do it. It's going to be great, all right? Okay, let's do space weather, and we'll talk about what's happening up there in the sky above your heads. There is a solar wind stream that uh, impacted the Earth's magnetic field just yesterday and caused not a real substantial geomagnetic storm, but a pretty extensive one in the northern hemispheres. If you were in Scandinavia, for example, there was some great imagery that was viewed and photographed up there. And the storm has pretty much calmed down, but it could flare up again. Uh, there's some interesting things happening on the surface of the sun that, of course, generate these storms. And uh, for people up there in the high latitudes, keep your eyes on the skies because it's going to be uh, interesting probably for the next, hmm, I don't know, five years maybe, six years, something like that. <laughs> anyway, if you have a solar telescope, um, you can actually look at the sun you probably got another 24 hours or so to do it. And you'll see one of the things that's been involved in this solar wind stream. And I actually mentioned it last week. There's a, a sunspot group up there that is designated number 905. And I told you that it was uh, one of these things they call a backward sunspot, where the magnetic field is reversed on the sunspot. It's something they don't see very often. And when they do, it signifies at least in some people's understanding, that the solar cycle is in the midst of, of, of shifting, uh, which would mean that we would be moving back into a more energetic cycle 
of the sun. And many of the solar cycles and solar watchers and sun bugs have speculated for quite some time that the sun has been getting more energetic and is getting more so uh, during the peaks of each successive cycle. And this next one is predicted to be quite an interesting one. So who knows what's coming, but the sun is always interesting to watch, and uh, the sun is certainly uh, something that you can't do without. Uh, but I'm not sure if you can do with too much of it either. So we'll have to find out. Anyway, keep your eye on the sun as always. All right, backward sunspot number 905. It's splitting up and it's throwing off all kinds of interesting things. It looks like it was just smashed by a big giant hammer. At least that's what the people at spaceweather.com think. And uh, if you keep your eye uh, up there or take a look over the next 24 hours, you'll be able to see it before it completely disappears. All right? The question is, does it go quietly? Because sometimes when sunspots are changing quickly, they can do wacky things. And uh, it has the potential to launch some big flares, perhaps. So the sun getting more excited, just like we are down here on planet Earth. Okay, on Tuesday, let's see, tomorrow night, if you go out just about an hour after sunset, you'll find... The crescent moon, it'll be down there in the southwest, very low though in the sky. Uh, Jupiter will be about 6 degrees up and to the right. The beautiful star Antares, 25 degrees or so, upper left. Spica, 21 degrees to the lower right. You'll have a nice little frame around the crescent moon in the southwest. And if you're up early, before sunrise, maybe an hour or so, on Wednesday, if you look to the east, northeast, you'll see Saturn, uh, four degrees or so, just above and to the right of Venus, and you'll know uh, Venus because it will be the primary light in the sky at that time of the night. All right, what else? On the 30th of August, that's Wednesday, we're coming up on the end of the month here. Again, after sunset, you'll find the moon up there in the southwest, still low in the sky, though, and it'll be about half full. And you'll see Jupiter now, about 15 degrees off and to the right. You'll see Antares again, 13 degrees up and to the left. And Venus and Saturn, uh, before sunrise, will be real close to one another, about 5 degrees apart. And it's a beautiful sight when you get up in the early morning like that, before the sun rises. And Venus will be getting lower and lower. Saturn will be rising. And... It's interesting, as you know, I become, the more I do the program, the more I become sort of a a naked eye astronomer, or I get better at it, you know, and the more you know about it, the more beautiful and fascinating and remarkable it becomes. Anyway, beautiful stuff happening in the skies. Uh, again, on Thursday, about an hour after sunset, if you're in the middle of the U.S., say somewhere in Michigan or Chicago, that area, the first quarter of the moon, the half moon, will be in the south-southwest, Antares again, uh, the heart of the scorpion, within a quarter, well, no, I'd say maybe two degrees, maybe a degree and a, qu- a, degree and a quarter. <laughs> but who's, who's counting, all right? Anyway, Antares will be just above the moon's northern top, and as the evening progresses, the moon will be moving to the east toward Tau Scorpii. There'll be an occultation of a star, that's called uh, Tau Scorpii, I should say, uh, which is just a little bit down and to the left of Antares. And you'll be able to see uh, the moon 
occult uh, that. So, anyway, all right, what else? Friday, the moon will be really low, almost six degrees lower than at the winter solstice. Remarkable, actually. And that'll be on December 21st this year. But as it passes due south, it will um, begin to rise a little bit. And from about 40 degrees north, the moon will be, I don't know, about 20 degrees, maybe 21 degrees up in the south uh, on September 1st and the 2nd. All right, what else do we have happening here in space news? On the 29th, that's tomorrow, there will be the launch of STS-115, Space Shuttle Atlantis, if everything goes okay. Um, what else? Griffith Observatory reopens real soon. Don't give an actual date. There are a number of different launches of satellites going up, a number of different close approaches of comets and asteroids. But uh, there's one of particular interest here, the SMART-1 project, which is a moon impact. We're basically sending this probe, smashing it into the moon. That impact is going to happen on September 3rd. And that should be an interesting event. And we won't talk again before... Um, before that actually occurs, because it'll be next Sunday, I guess. So let me tell you just a little bit about it here. The, uh, as I said, the the project is called Smart One. I'm not sure if, that, if that's a very good description of it. At any rate, here's uh, the way it's described by the European Space Agency. Now Europe too can say it has been to the moon. In the early morning of the 3rd of September this year. The European Space Agency's Smart One mission will end its exploration adventure through a small impact on the lunar surface. The whole story began in September 2003 when an Ariane 5 launcher blasted off from Kourou, French Guiana to deliver the European Space Agency's lunar spacecraft Smart One into Earth orbit. Smart One is a small unmanned satellite weighing about 366 kilograms and roughly fitting into a cube about one meter across. Uh, at any rate, uh, they're going to smash this thing into the moon and see what happens. And they say that if you're looking at the right time, you might be able to see it. So just uh, hop on the web if you're interested. I'll post something up at my site about Smart One, but if you hop on the web and just put that in your search engine, I'm sure you can find information about the particular little impact that's going to happen on the moon, uh, this satellite that they're just going to smash into it at the end of its mission. Boy, we've, we've, we've come so far since the 60s. All right, what else is going on here? What time is it? 35 after the hour or so. Let's play a little bit of music here. And we'll come back and I'll do a little bit of news. We'll check in over there in the chat room, see if anybody has anything they'd like to share with us. And then we'll have John Major Jenkins at the top of the hour. Okay? So we'll do it. Back in just a minute. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And uh, let me mention this before we go to break here. KOPN is drumming up support for our fall fund drive. Our October drive goal is $75,000. It's our wish to hold only two drives between October 2006 and September 2007. So uh, we're looking for your support. We can't do it without you. Now's the time to arrange a challenge. Challenges help us leverage donations from others. And if you'd like to learn more about challenges, please contact my friend Julie Baca at 573-874-1139.
All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. One more time, KOPN Columbia. And as always, Monday nights on the web, www.cosmicwavesradio.com. As I said, these are my friends, the nebulous who knows who, and this is track 12.
KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. All right, it's Mike Hagan. You listen to Radio Orbit. It's about 12, 15 minutes before 12, I guess, thereabouts. And it's the 28th of August, 2006. And we just heard track 12. <laughs> and I wish I knew who it was. I'll find out. And as I said, we'll put it up there on the music page or in the music archives at the website over there at MikeHagan.com. I can tell you this much. I found all the music that we're going to play tonight over there at www.tortuga.com. I was trying to come up with some appropriate tunes for tonight, and uh, as the uh, heavens would have it, I got a great email from my friend Dennis, and he said, hey, check out this music collection I found over there at tortuga.com. And as I said before, I think that's a site that's associated with Jose Arguez. At any rate, there's a bunch of great stuff over there. You can find it yourself if you're industrious, I'm sure. And one more time, that website is T-O-R-T-U-G-A, Tortuga.com. And I appreciate them putting the art up and sharing it with us, just like we're trying to do. And I'd love to make a connection with those guys over there. So anyway, all right, as I said, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia. And here we go. Let's see. Uh, tonight, as I said, we're going to be speaking with John Major Jenkins. We might as well give out John's website one more time. You can find that, again, at my site, linking right over to John's. It's alignment2012.com. All right, alignment2012.com. You can go directly to John's site, or you can link over there from mikehagan.com. Either way, take a look around. There's a bunch of amazing information and uh, great stuff that John's been uh, embarking on for many, many years now. So it's going to be a fascinating conversation, as it always is, with John Major Jenkins coming up in just about 15 minutes. And before then, I thought I would talk a little bit about what's in the news here with regard to 2012. And we'll find out if we're on target or not. All right. Okay, first, uh, this is, let's see, I think the first 20 stories or so that I, that I found in the news... On, I went, what I did is I went to Google, I put in the number 2012, and then I clicked on the news search, so it would pull up the top, you know, whatever, how many stories um, in the news about 2012. And there was a whole boatload of them, but this was just, uh, you'll, you'll get a feel for, for what's going on in the world. All right, first one, Sydney to bid for 2012 World Expo. Uh, this is a big story in Australia right now, and it's a major event there that's coming up. There's uh, the quote from Google says, Mr. Aima said the state's next big target would be the 2012 International Registered Expo. And uh, many other associated stories about the 2012 Sydney bid for the World Expo in the news. All right, next story. A top Senate post would prime Clinton for 2012. All right. Woman to occupy... All right, now I'm just going to read the clip, and it may not make any sense. So this is, you know, it's a sort of dot, dot, dot. Woman to occupy the August body's leadership position. She would remain in the public eye, ready and waiting, were the ground to shift in 2012 to look dot, dot, dot. In other words, uh, they're talking about Hillary Clinton running for the presidency, I'm guessing, in 2012. All right, the next story here. Number three. From New York, the Post Standard in Syracuse. Six speeds fill the need for fun and efficiency. A company that does forecasting and market intelligence for the auto industry recently predicted that by 2012, at least 60% of the cars sold in North 
Dot, dot, dot. All right, you get the idea. Big advances in the auto industry coming in 2012. What's next? Number four. No plans to axe equestrian venue. London, 2012. This is from gamesbids.com. The fourth most looked at or fourth most high-ranking story in Google News about 2012. The London 2012 Organizing Committee issued a statement regarding recent speculation as to the use of Greenwich Park at the 2012 Summer Olympic Games. It has to do with riding horses there. That might be a good idea to have a horse in 2012, actually. All right. Athletics. This is the next one. What did I say that was for? This is number five. Athletics. Moorcroft's 2012 Games Objective. Man, it's all sort of uh, sporting events so far, at least. Except for Hillary Clinton. Of course, that's sort of a sporting event, too. Sort of a sick one. but uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, here's this one. David Moorcroft wants his successor as chief executive of UK athletics to be given enough time to prepare for the 2012 Olympic Games in London. Well, I mean, he's got as much time as he's got. You know, can't give him any more time than you have, pretty much. Right? I mean, in 2012, he'll have had as much time as he could have had. <laughs> he should quit yapping about it, maybe, and just do something. Like get a horse. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, okay, uh, what's next? Here's one from the Arab Times in Kuwait. PAHC, I don't know what the hell that means, but PAHC plans to solve housing crisis by early 2012. Another intuitive article, perhaps. Uh, we are planning to solve the housing crisis and reduce the number of pending applications to 144 by the beginning of 2012. All right, we're going to solve the housing crisis there in Kuwait City, or maybe it will be solved for them. Uh, UCF, what have I lost count? That's six or seven. Maybe not, maybe eight, I don't know. UCF professors to work on weather instrument design for 2012. This is from NASA, uh, University of Central Florida. If the researchers are successful, they will receive a $45 million grant to build and launch their design as part of the 2012 radiation belt storm probes. Okay. From the Pakistan Dawn, 85... PC literacy by 2012. President Pervez Musharraf, I'm sorry, Musharraf, has said, President, by the way, President Pervez Musharraf, five years ago, the guy took over the government in a military coup. But he's the president now. All right? That's because the Pakistanis are good, strong allies in the war against terror. Go, Pakistan. Go ISI, ISI, CIA, ISI, CIA. Uh, President Pervez Musharraf has said the federal government will offer all necessary funding to the provinces to achieve 85% literacy by 2012. All right. Too bad they got to read a bunch of crap. <laughs> if they learn how to read. Here, this is from the Irish Examiner. Olympics Task Force role for ex-GAA chief. The former GAA President Sean Kelly and budget travel chief Gillian Bowler will be among the members of the new London 2012 Olympics Task Force. Another one about the Olympics there. Next one, the market for enterprise portals, $1,100 million. In other words, $1.1 billion in 2005. 
Uh, www.researchmarkets.com has announced the addition of Portal Software Market Opportunities, Strategies and Forecast 2006 to 2012, blah, blah, blah. They're going to make a whole lot of money. Uh, bid to lure 2012 Olympians for training. This is from Ireland Online. From the Guardian UK, Athletics seeks new leader in the race for 2012. From the Independent UK, number 12 or 13, whatever. Athletics, Moorcroft departure, renews talk of bigger 2012 input. Over 3 million visitors expected by 2012 in New Zealand. Uh, big push to piggyback on windfall of 2012 London Olympics. There's another one they're going to make a lot of money on. Uh, 3.1 million visitors expected by 2012. Another story about New Zealand having a whole lot of visitors. That might be intuitive as well. Moorcroft, again, this guy, he's all over the Olympics. China to host 2012 International... Here's one. This one slipped my attention. I'm glad I kept reading. China to host 2012 International Astronomical Union Conference. China has won the right to host the 2012 International Astronomical Union Conference, beating France, Germany, and Greece at an IAU meeting. Hmm, that might be an interesting one. All right, uh, what else? From Kuala Lumpur. Uh, ASEAN, ASEAN, I forget what that is, but it's an Asian cooperative of some sort. Uh, will fully eliminate non-tariff barriers by 2012 in three stages. <laughs> and the last one, but not least, of course, we finish up again with China will host International Astronomical Union Conference in 2012. So anyway, that's what's happening in the news with regard to 2012. And it is a far cry from what we will be talking about tonight on Radio Orbit with my, uh, my guest, the wonderful John Major Jenkins. And the fact that we're uh, miles away from what the mainstream is shooting us means I think we're sort of getting closer to center mass, if you know what I mean. So we'll find out as time rolls along. And uh, unlike the guys in the Olympics, you only got as much time as you got. So whether you like it or not, we're all going to find out what's happening just five or six years in the future. Maybe something big, maybe something little, maybe nothing at all. Maybe the whole world changes. Who knows? All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia. 89.5 FM. We'll be back in just a few minutes with my guest, John Major Jenkins. You can find us both on the web at www.mikehagan.com. And uh, John, of course, on the web at alignment2012.com. All right, here's another song, and it is called Flavored Icicle. And it's by a band called Blue Spectral Monkey. you got to love the name. Here's the song.
Radio Orbit KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Over 2,000 years ago, the early Maya formulated a profound galactic cosmology. They saw that the sun on the winter solstice was slowly moving toward the heart of the galaxy. Naturally enough, with their uncorrupted intelligence intact, they suspected that the world would go through a transformation when the solar and galactic planes aligned. They devised their long count calendar to target when the cosmic alignment would maximize, and that time is A.D. 2012. We are lucky that the brilliant sky watchers who devised the 2012 calendar left carved monuments for us to decode, and that they have survived the decay of centuries so that we can know exactly what they prophesied and believed about 2012. A man in the middle of this entire amazing phenomenon is named John Major Jenkins. He's been studying it for many, many years, long before it was hip, and we're fortunate to have him on the program tonight. We've had him a couple times before. He's a wonderful friend of the program, and we welcome him one more time. John Major Jenkins, welcome to Radio Orbit. Thanks again, as always, man. Well, Mike, I'm very glad to be here once again, and thank you for uh, facilitating this entire evolving discussion. It is something else, isn't it? Yeah. So what do you think about the news about 2012? <laughs> well, yeah, it was pretty clear that uh, the, uh, the the news uh, the news offices aren't really tuned into the 2012 discussion as as we understand it. No, it doesn't seem so. So, uh, uh, in in my world, that means that's we're probably right on target. I would imagine that as we get closer, of course, it'll probably tre- be treated by the media as a. Uh, trendy phenomenon of some kind and you know it'll be the the news item of of the month or something mm. in 2012 at a certain time and they'll they'll treat it accordingly i don't i don't really expect there to be any uh real in-depth discussion about it it will certainly be uh probably labeled you know by the media as one of those kooky things to snicker at and they'll haul up pictures of you know, long-haired hippies or something like that. and Or Y2K or something like that and compare it to this sort of thing where oh, everyone was so worried about the end of the world but nothing, you know, it became a non-event or something. Right, right. And, you know, to me, of course that's the first thing that comes up in people's minds and I get it all the time. And I've learned to deal with that for what it is, which is, you know, basically like... Um, you know, a, a human fear uh, that comes up, that uh, end of the world, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And what, what's going to happen? What does it mean? You know, but uh, I don't know. I just really wish that the discussion would go to, um, you know, looking at what the Maya were, like the little intro you read there that was uh, pointing the discussion to the site, Izapa. Right. That invented the 2012 calendar. I mean, why not? Why can't we have a? I mean, I know that you're doing that, and I really appreciate that. But I really wish that the other, you know, media outlets would sort of, uh, you know, allow for uh, uh, a more intelligent discussion about it. Yeah, and it, you know, the question to me seems really strange because the media as far as most people are concerned, they want to just tell interesting stories and and get people to be interested in whatever they're peddling. And if there wasn't any particular agenda, I, I, I don't know why they wouldn't grab onto this story, quite frankly, because, gosh, if you want to get people's attention and get them interested in a story, 
boy, all you got to do is intelligently tell this one, and I don't care who you are. It's like, wow, that's an amazing story. You know, what, whether you buy into it fully at the beginning or not, or you decide, you know, to investigate it further, it's certainly an interesting story. Well, yeah, and the story is basically that there is an archaeological site in southern Mexico that was involved in the invention of this 2012 calendar, and at that site we can find carved monuments. And those carved monuments are encoding astronomical information, which points directly to this rare alignment that culminates in the years around 2012. And even more so than that, uh, the pictographs on these carved monuments are telling uh, the Maya creation myth story. So that involves a prophecy as well as a spiritual teaching. And so it's like the whole package is right there at Azapa. Well, John, let's do that for for the people who haven't had uh, a full plate of this stuff. Why don't you, we've got plenty of time, but uh, take as much as you'd like, and let's do at least a synopsis of the the creation mythology, of some of the things that are represented on the monuments in Izapa, and uh, you say there's a cosmic lesson involved. Let's talk a little bit about what we think they were actually trying to communicate to us, and then talk about maybe, you know, why we think... It actually meant something. It's not just another silly story. Sure. Well, I wanted to uh, point out something that uh, maybe is the, the the background to the story. Is uh, as you were uh, reading the news clips there, I decided to uh, go on to Google and type in 2012, and uh, you know just hit the search for the web section because you were looking at the news items, and that does get a give a good uh, you know. Um, uh, sense for for where the 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 recent news items are at with 2012 but if you just uh, type in 2012 to google and search the main web section the first item that comes up is a file called why 2012 and you click on that and it takes you to terence mckenna's site and back in 1995 he posted the article that i wrote that was that i wrote in like 1994 that sort of broke the case Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm where, you know, I basically made a couple of connections that nobody had made before between the long count calendar, the site of Izapa, this uh, rare galactic alignment. And uh, so that uh, that article was actually published later that year in Mountain Astrologer magazine. And uh, Terrence... Um, generously posted it on his uh, on his website and it's is still there today so it was kind of heartening to see that early uh, breakthrough article um to be like number 1 on the search list and that's ranked according to like the number of hits that it gets right mhm yeah okay yeah i mean there's certainly some sort of a hierarchical ranking that has to do with the hits for sure i mean i'm sure some people pay for it <laughs> oh right right <laughs> you i know, think that's how that works uh, yeah but uh, but I think that certainly there's a there's a number of hits mechanism in there too. I think. Right. So, wow, amazing stuff. Yeah. So, well, there is a question that I want to ask you right up front here uh, that somebody had posted in the chat room uh, early on, and I'm not sure if it fits right now. But it's but I just because the the way the chat page goes, it rolls out of sight pretty soon. Oh. And, and if, uh, if I don't say it now, I won't be able to document it. So let me just say it, and whether we want to address it now, we can, or we can just write it down for later, okay? All right. Uh, but he mentions uh, a gentleman whose name was Ian Lungold and asked if 
uh, if you had <laughs> any ideas uh, whether next year, I'm guessing 2007, uh, uh, he's asking that, that we would meet our galactic neighbors. That I think that that maybe was a was an idea that Lundgold was putting forward, and I'm not sure if you have any position on that, John. But I've read a little bit about that. I don't. It's one of those things where people come up with different dates. Uh, whether it's uh, intuitive prophecy, I don't know. Uh, I don't see 2007 as being indicated in any way uh, by the calendar. You know, some people say. You know, bring up this whole other issue of, uh, well, you know, you know, they they now know that Jesus was born in 4 B.C. So if we were to date our our whole Christian calendar based upon the birth year of Jesus, then we're like four years off. So so the end date really isn't 2012. You know, and this is kind of a silly observation, really, because if if we were to switch our calendar. Uh, to a dating based upon what we now call 4 BC, then the whole framework shifts. Mm. It's not like it's going to bring 2012 four years closer to us. It's just that, you know, the end date would fall in 2008, but this year would be 2002. Right, in other so words. it's still six years off. Right. I don't understand this whole you know, hoopla around this revised dating of the Christian calendar. It's uh, kind of a silly thing. I don't I don't think that's what uh, Lungold's 2007 date is about, uh, from what I recall reading about it. Yeah, I think there are, you know, certain uh, writers and uh, idea makers have talked about, you know, sort of a progression of events as we move toward that window, you know, the closer we get to... The, oh, the 2012 okay. date that, that certain events might happen along the way, you know, and and I think that Lundgold may have been pointing at that as one of these things being contact, you know, with uh, right our, our alien species from outside of our solar system or something like that. I'm not sure. And I mean, hey, as with all things right now, the proof is in the pudding. We'll see soon enough, you know. But that brings up the whole uh, sort of philosophical discussion about what what we should be looking at and talking about with 2012, I suppose that, uh, you know, one of the big assumptions that I've noticed is that uh, uh, 2012 is supposed to schedule a some kind of transcendental mystical event of some kind, whether it's the speeding up of history that Terence has modeled with his time wave zero theory or something like that mm-hmm. in terms of, like, um, you know, a cascade of events speeding up, and then the hundredth monkey phenomenon kicks in or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is an assumption in there that uh, uh, 2012 is the thing that's modeling this. And so, I mean, that that might very well be, but there's a step that people take in that where they say, well, hey, look, I just, you know, looked at all these graphs and demographics, and, and it really looks like things are going to come to a head in 2008, or 2007, or, you know, I did a study of all the demographics of population growth, and everything's really going to come to some omega point in 2009. (laughs) So the Maya got it wrong. (laughs) And so it opens the door to this, like, whole uh, growth industry of people proposing their own, with with the um, premise that we can just go and trash the 2012 date and inject our own dates and, and, like, make some kind of revised thing. 
And that's just plain silly from my point of view because December 21st, 2012 is the, you know, the authentic artifact that we should honor. And that's what, uh, you know, of course, the, the date that, you know, we, we have from the, the work of scholars over many decades making the correlation between the calendars. All right, let's talk about that a little bit because this all unfolds from this Izapan cosmology. Uh, the iconography, all the carvings and the stone monuments in South America, mm-hmm. and connect that for the listeners. Oh yeah, uh, you know h- how does that tie into 2012, and how do we know that that is a significant date? And again, as you say, regardless of whether uh, you shift the calendar here, or there, yeah. or or okay. elsewhere, it has to do with an actual cosmic event that that that, that is independent of our calendars. Right. It's going to happen either way. The way I language this is the way that I've learned to frame the whole discussion, and I think it is a a way of framing it that uh, avoids the pitfalls that um, you know other perspectives fall into, which are sort of based upon halfway true understandings of the topic. So let me uh, you know give a, a little sketch here. Uh, the long count calendar is this timekeeping system, and it's found carved on monuments um, going back to the first century BC. Uh, the first monuments carved with long count dates are, are dated to the first century BC. Um, the long count calendar has these periods of baktuns, and um, according to the creation monuments, which are uh, like texts that are carved with hieroglyphs and dated in the long count, they're actually talking about creation day and the uh, subsequent recreations of the world at uh, specific intervals. This is basically just the World Age Doctrine. You know, we we find the World Age Doctrine in many ancient cultures. The the Hindus had the the Yuga system, the Yugas, and, well, the Maya had their own World Age Doctrine, and they believed that, Every 13 baktuns, a period in the long count calendar, that's about 5,125 years, Mm -hmm. the world would go through a transformation. And in the creation mythology itself, which we have recorded, uh, it's called the Popol Vuh, so we not only have these carved monuments that are telling us about the World Age Doctrine and Creation Day, but we also have the, the texts of the Maya creation story, the Popol Vuh, otherwise known as the Hero Twin myth, because mm-hmm. it involves the adventures of the Hero Twins and their attempt to, to resurrect, resurrect their father. And I can get into that a little bit later. Sure, and that, you know, it's amazing that, you know, that imagery we see in so many other uh, mythologies, the Hero Twins. Oh, right. You know, right. And, and, going, and going to save... The father. I mean, you think of Set and Osiris and and uh, and Horus and that whole story. And sure, uh, and most importantly, as with the Egyptian mythology and many other mythologies, the Maya creation myth encodes astronomy. Mm. So that's uh, that's a real key. Mm. And uh, so we we have these uh, texts that are talking about you know the transformation of the world. So it's always about transformation in the Maya World Age doctrine. I mean, that's, you know, fundamental truth number one. 
And, and uh, when I look at the primary documents of the Maya World Age Doctrine, I don't see doomsday. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's kind of a superficial level of interpretation that today, you know, appeals to the masses as it probably did at any point in history, you know, to just kind of flay the superficial interpretation and use it as a fear-mongering device to control the masses. Mm. So people today that aren't willing to go to a, a deeper level with the discussion will fall prey to that, as do any people at any point in history. So my appeal is to, to sort of like, let's go to a deeper level with that mm. and uh, get beyond that whole thing because it's really about transformation and renewal. John, how can we be comfortable with the translations that we know that that they were talking about words that we could equate with transformation and renewal and and you know and, and new worldly ideas? Well, as far as the Popol Vuh creation myth that was recorded by Mayan elders in the 1550s, and it's quite apparent that they were actually reading from a hieroglyphic text. So they were um, sort of sanctioned by the, um, the the Christian priest who was uh, sensitive to, you know, recording the ancient stories, uh, and uh, this this all occurred in the town of uh, um, Santa Cruz del Quiche in Guatemala in the 1550s. So the elders were able to record. By that time, they'd already been sort of they already learned how to you know, speak Spanish and write in the alphabetic script and stuff like that. Yeah, so, but, still, but still 500 years almost. 500 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the work of translators, you know, doing good translations, comparing comparing words and concepts and and all that kind of thing. Okay. All right. And, and it's a pictorial language. Well, in the original hieroglyphic uh, form, yeah. But uh, what was recorded in the 1550s then got put down into, um, into Spanish Latin, Latin, Latin script, and okay. then it was. Right. And the original of that is uh, still surviving today. It's in the Newberry Library in Chicago. Is that right? Yeah. Well, how did it get there? Oh, I don't know. It was one of the acquisitions. You know, libra- huh. big libraries and universities acquire these things. Yeah, out- acquire. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of strange, isn't it? Yeah, interesting acquisition. But Dennis Tedlock was the uh, translator and Maya scholar who worked directly with the original text and produced this amazing translation, and he was very sensitive to the astronomical content of the various deities and mythological episodes. Hmm. Okay, and uh, in Izapa, are we seeing... The same story told in stone? Yeah, and this is where we get uh, more into my own pioneering work with the material. Other scholars have pointed out that the the pictographic, and it's very pictographic, at Azapa, it's not not hieroglyphic at all, which is a more abstract kind of writing style that the the later Maya adopted. We're talking about 2,000 years ago. So this is basically... Uh, pre-classic period. It's early Maya, early Maya, you know, before the classic Maya civilization, which stretched from about 200 A.D. to 900 A.D. Izapa was experiencing its heyday in about the 
the first century BC. And these carved monuments are um, really, really striking. And the most amazing thing about the site of Izapa is it was a, oh, it was many things. I think of it as like uh, an initiation center. It was also like a sacred precinct where astronomical observations were made. Shamans were busy there doing uh, their thing. Um, and what's so striking about Izapa is that these carved monuments, they are depicting episodes that we know from the later Popol Vuh creation myth. So there's this, already we see, you know, from the first century B.C., to the 1550s when the Popol Vuh was recorded, we have like a 1,600-year continuity. Hmm. So, we, yeah, yeah. so we know that they were doing it long before it was recorded in the 1500s. Right. So there's distinct episodes involving the hero twins and other characters in the creation myth on the carved monuments of Azapa. Very, very striking. So, and it's the first place in history, in Mesoamerican history, where these episodes are found. So it's basically like a good indication that Azapa was not only the place where the Long Count calendar was formulated, but also the place where the hero twin creation myth was formulated. Well, not surprising. I've pointed this out. It's really kind of a two plus two equals four thing, but I've pointed out that the creation mythology and the Long Count calendar go together. You know, it's like... Um, the Long Count Calendar, of course, is involved in the World Age Doctrine, you know, because 13 Bakhtuns equals one World Age, right. and we're approaching the end of one of these World Ages, and that's 2012. And so, the, so the first one began 3,000 some odd BC. Yeah, 3114 BC. Yeah. 3114 BC, and fast forward 5,200 plus years and brings us right to 2012. And now, oh, wow. And then there's a sign in the sky that can't be ignored right. as well, right? Yeah, and this is another thing that I've sort of um, put on the table. I've, After doing a lot of my research in the 90s, I, you know, um, started to understand how the Mayan, ancient Maya sky watchers thought about time and and so on. And, you know, basically they weren't so much interested in the 3114 B.C. date, uh, which scholars have assumed that it's the beginning date that we should find inter of interest, you know, which is kind of a bias of the modern mindset. Right, always look backwards. But the Mayan mindset, and we have evidence for this in various things like naming practices of the periods of time and so on. Basically, they were interested in the end. Their... Uh, you know, they believed that the interesting thing happened at the end of a time cycle or process. And they took this metaphor from nature, basically. Like, for example, birth happens at the end of the nine-month period of gestation. Mm -hmm. And their, their calendar periods are named for their end date. So we're currently in the Four Ahau Katun, uh, which began in 1993, but it ends in, two, in 2012, and the end date is for Ahau. So we are in the, the for Ahau Katun, named for its end date. That's how Mayan uh, naming practices worked, and it's an indication that they were, they were more concerned with what would happen at the end of a process. So that, that's why my attention 
went to 2012. And let me just lay something out here uh, for you. Uh, it's, it's really interesting because, as it, you know, you pointed out with your, uh, you know, Google search that uh, the media is not paying any attention to 2012 right now, anyway. Right. right. Well, what about uh, Mesoamerican scholars, archaeologists, um, all the whole crew of people that are so passionate about the Maya and Mayan cosmology and the calendar and hieroglyphic writing and, and all these scholars, what do they have to say about 2012? Right. Well, they completely disregard it. If, they're gonna, if they say anything at all, because they basically believe that it's irrelevant, there's, there's, no, there's nothing of interest in it at all. It's basically what they'll say is, oh, the world's not going to end, ha, 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 you know, and snicker and walk away. Hmm. They will Now, what's absurd about this position is that according to the best and most widely accepted correlation, the end date is precisely December 21st, 2012. Well, December 21st is a solstice date. Mm-hmm. And this calendar was put in place over 2,000 years ago. Right, that's that means, fluke, right? at the very least, that they were projecting forward 2,000 years to an accurate winter solstice. Now, shouldn't that be a vector for greater inquiry among the scientists? Right, Wouldn't that be the scientific response? Right, I, I mean, just from the... If, you know, to use one of Terence's words, just from the novelty perspective, it's a very novel thing you need to take a look at. I mean, is this a coincidence? Come on. Well, I know it's absurd, but more than one scholar have, have responded to me and said, it must be a coincidence. <laughs> what was it? P.W. Bridgman who said, uh, uh, a coincidence is what you have left over when you've applied a bad theorem. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's good. Right? Hey, all right, look, John, uh, we're bottom of the hour. Let's take a little break, all right? All right. All right, we'll come back and uh, we'll do more. we got another hour and a half with our friend John Major Jenkins. Everybody, check him out on the web at alignment2012.com. You can link there directly from my site as well at mikehagan.com. And you can also hear the couple of conversations that John and I have had prior to this one, uh, back earlier this year and right at the end of last year. Wonderful stuff, and we appreciate his time and the information that he is uh, bringing forward and has been for many, many years now. So a big thank you to John one more time on the web at alignment2012.com. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. You can hear this program live every Monday night on the web as well, www.cosmicwavesradio.com. And thanks to everybody listening on the web right now. So, all right, one more time. We'll play a little bit of music that we snuck off of... uh, uh, Tortuga.com. This one is from a band called Quetzal, and the song is called To Navigate This Ocean. It's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
right, everybody. That's a song called To Navigate This Ocean. The band's called Quetzal. And uh, thanks again to the people over at Tortuga.com for making that available to us over here at Radio Orbit. All right, it's Mike, and you are listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And my guest tonight is John Major Jenkins. You can find out information about John on the web at www.alignment2012.com. He's got all kinds of books that he's written, all kinds of interesting articles that he's penned. Uh, the one that struck my eye many years ago was called Maya Cosmogenesis 2012, and uh, he's not stopped since. And lucky for us, we've got him tonight on the line with us from his home in Colorado. I think, yeah, I'm sure you're back in Colorado, right, John? I am. I'm actually in the mountains right now because I'm house-sitting for some friends. Wow. And, uh, what part of the mountains? Uh, at about 9,000 feet in uh, Netherlands. In Netherlands, just up there north of Boulder. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, up the up Boulder Canyon Road. That's amazing. I used to hang out up there, you know. Oh, it's a wonderful place. It's, it's the uh, greatest little town. We had quite a hailstorm this afternoon, as, as a matter of fact. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you can get the weather can, can change pretty quick up there. It can get wild up there. That was a lot of fun, though. Uh, I haven't been up here in a while, and the uh, annual Ned Fest was this past weekend. Was that the Frozen guy? No, no, no. That was that's a different thing. <laughs> the Ned Fest is mountain music and fun oh. and, and and dancing and stuff like that. All right. Well, all I remember is there was a Frozen guy that uh, somebody kept in their house there in Netherlands for like years, and then uh, then they came down on him. He was uh, yeah. Remember that? And then they ped- and then they started a parade every year with the guy or something. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's still going on. It was a strange little debacle that happened about 15 years ago where some. Some uh, guy wanted to be frozen and sent back to Norway or something like that. I don't. I don't remember. I don't know the story. <laughs> All right. Anyway, well, yeah, Netherlands an interesting place uh, and, gosh, a comfortable place too. Beautiful up there in the mountains. So. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks for being around with us, and let's continue here. We we're talking about the Mayan cosmology. We we're talking about the alignment that actually happens in the sky. So, uh, again, regardless of, of whose calendar you use, and the same thing is going to happen up there, uh, the date that we equate to it right now with our calendar is this December solstice in 2012, right? Right, yeah. And, and let me just say real quick, Mike, that uh, for, for listeners, that uh, it might seem like we're, we're sort of uh, hanging on some details here, but uh, I, I really believe it's important to... to get the fundamentals laid out first and then later on in the interview we can uh, get a little bit more into the uh, cool metaphysics of uh, spiritual transformation and and the perennial philosophy and all that fun stuff yeah but, uh, yeah absolutely but first we want to we yeah. at least do our best to show people that this is a real event that's happening in you know and it's being signified by a real astronomical event, and I think that's I know. where it really, really comes well, that, together. That's really know. important, because I, I, I say this from the vantage point of a lot of the emails I get and a lot of the discussions that I have on Google groups and Yahoo groups and so on usually revolve around, like, real simple misunderstandings of the basics. Mm. So, for example, you mentioned this alignment that's happening in the sky, and uh, this basically... Uh, is in alignment um, in within the great cycle of the precession of the equinoxes. So the the precessional cycle is this great twenty six thousand year cycle of the Earth. It's 
most people believe that it's caused by the Earth slowly wobbling on its axis, and it effectively changes our angular orientation to the sky. And uh, one of the effects of precession is that it causes the sun, the position of the sun on, say, the solstice, to shift um, through different constellations. Mm -hmm. it's the sun, the position of the sun on the solstice will shift in relation to background features like stars and constellations right. and, and the, the Milky Way. And, John, by the position of the sun, we mean the position of the rising sun. Is that right? Or the, or the, or the noon sun? Or the it doesn't really matter. The anchor point for the measurement would be just the designation that it's either like the equinox sun or the solstice sun. Mm -hmm. Okay. It doesn't really matter how you, where you place that within the, uh, the day cycle. Okay, regardless of the 24-hour cycle. Yeah. Okay, all right. And uh, so, you know, the, the shifting position of the sun is something that ancient cultures um, noticed. Um, it's a, very, a fairly subtle thing. Uh, it's, it's pretty clear that the ancient Babylonians knew about it, the ancient Egyptians knew about it. In fact, it uh, gives rise to these world age doctrines. Uh, the mythologist Joseph Campbell hmm. had pointed out that uh, pretty much wherever you find a world age doctrine, uh, you can suspect that the processional phenomenon is lurking in the shadows somewhere. <laughs> so, and so too, with the Maya, um, their world age doctrine is related to the discovery of procession. And there's evidence for that, um, in fact, hundreds of years before Izapa. And uh, so what's going on is um, uh, it, it's very interesting that there's a very compelling alignment within the processional cycle that's culminating in the years around 2012. And this isn't just some, you know, alignment of planets or something like that. It has to do with the, the axis of the solstices. So I like to think of the solstice as like the hour hand of the great processional clock. Okay. And it's uh, spinning slowly around the uh, clock face. And once every 26,000 years, the hour hand points to 12 midnight. Hmm. And what that's indicating is the solstice is lining up with the Milky Way. The Milky Way arches overhead, you know, it's like, it looks like a big white road in the sky, and um, the sun is moving along a track called the ecliptic, and uh, basically the sun on the solstice, on the December solstice, and remember, the end date falls on the December solstice, right. will be, uh, now this is, this is all a de facto Alignment and, and uh, the fact that the December solstice sun is lining up with the Milky Way in the years around 2012 is an astronomical fact. And it's, it's quite absurd and amusing that some of the debates that I've had, and if a person Googles galactic alignment, mm -hmm. they're likely to be taken to a Wikipedia entry which completely confounds and confutes the entire discussion. <laughs> so on the level of the facts behind this this work that I've done, there are strange forces of limitation and um, confusion that are calling into question something as simple as the fact that there is this rare alignment. Now, I've been very careful in my work to, 
you know, talk about, it's absurd to say that this happens only on December 21st, 2012. It's a very slow phenomenon. I've been talking about an alignment zone for about 10 years, you know, since I've first started doing this pioneering work with okay, the alignment. Oh, so, so more like a, a window of opportunity, this sort of thing. Well, just a factual range for right. the alignment. Okay. Whether or not it's, uh, you know, and yeah, it, it leads into the discussion of an opportunity for, for something. Right. But just in terms of the astronomy, um, I basically draw from the work of a very respected European astronomer named Jean Muse, who uh, actually calculated the galactic alignment in one of his books back in 1997. And based upon that, and based upon the fact that the sun itself is half a degree wide, we basically have an alignment zone that runs from 1980 to the year 2016. Hmm. So now the fact that the now this this all basically goes to my the basic core of my theory is the hypothesis that the ancient Maya, who invented the 2012 calendar. They were intending to target this future alignment of the December solstice sun and the galaxy, specifically the galactic equator, which is just the precise way that astronomers talk about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, based upon that, we have a coincidence, which is probably more of an indication of intentionality than a coincidence, but we have this connection that we can make between the end date, which is an established thing, December 21st, 2012, and this rare alignment zone. Wow, it's amazing. Now, that to me was a, a vector for further inquiry, and that, that's what led me to the site of Izapa. Mm -hmm. And then actually finding out, investigating, like, well, this is pretty interesting. You know, uh, I wonder if these astronomical features involved in this end date alignment scenario, if if they have any meaning in terms of, you know, different Mayan institutions. And sure enough, I found that these astronomical features, like the December solstice sun and the Milky Way and so on, they're front and center in the Maya creation mythology and the ball game symbolism uh, and so on. Hmm. And much of that is, is again, shown up in the monuments and the carvings at Izapa. Exactly, and and people can go to my website, and I I freely share the information. It's also in all of my books, if you really want to get into the into the details with it. But there's a couple of pages linked to my homepage uh, about Izapa, as well as about uh, what is the galactic alignment, and people can take a take a look there to get the fundamentals on that. Okay, yeah, and one more time, that's on the web at alignment2012.com, and uh, you should take a look over there. Yeah, there's also the, uh, uh, yeah, the page that's, there are two right off, connected from the front page there. What is the galactic alignment? Uh -huh. and, and, that, and these are helpful, too, because of the visuals, and um, because some people have a difficult time just putting their brain around what this actually means in terms of, what's actually happening in the sky or in the heavens, you know what I mean? Yeah, for the time being, I can only assure people that it is a factual thing. And uh, so based upon that, we can, you know, explore more of what does it mean? You know, mm -hmm. this is some kind of great cycle ending then. What does it mean? All right, so 
John, what do we know about the Maya as far as the times that they spent there? Do we have any real good idea of when they began and when they ended? Or I mean, I know there are still Maya people now, but I mean, as far as the uh-huh. civilization... Oh, well, Mesoamerican civilization goes way back. I mean, they were domesticating uh, corn five, 6,000 years ago. So although the distinct people we call the Maya aren't really identifiable until about, you know, I guess, you know, it gets pushed back further and further. Um, probably about 2,000 years ago, the Maya civilization arose. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Mesoamerica was a very complex uh ever-evolving and shifting uh, situation. The Olmec people are considered to be the great mother culture of Mesoamerica, and they were busy doing things around 2000 B.C. All right, so this is a predecessor, certainly, of the Maya. Yeah, and they had high culture and uh, art and sculpture and cities and trade and the whole thing going on there. Wow, and it's, I mean, so sort of... Not sort of, but it seems to parallel what was happening in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley and over there in, in Eurasia. Yeah, yeah, uh, probably not to, to that extent, uh-huh. but uh, there definitely was, uh, there were interesting things going on in Mesoamerica, 15, uh, 1500 B.C., you know, 1000 B.C., especially there was this one site among the Olmec called La Venta, and uh, we have good archaeological data on this, and uh, at this site, we have an indication that the main temple axis was oriented to a star in the Big Dipper constellation. However, because of precession, this alignment would go out of alignment every 100 years or so. And in the archaeological data, we, we have evidence that they were actually like tearing down their buildings and reorienting them a couple of degrees further to the east to keep up with the changes that were happening as a result of procession. So because of this, uh, we can be pretty sure that 3,000 years ago, the Olmec had become aware of this this phenomenon that's so critical to understanding the uh, 2012 date. Amazing. That's outrageous how far back it goes. And, and, and you know, for most people, I think that it's part of the fascination, John, is that in our culture... We don't look forward very far. I mean, if we look forward, you know, people have a calendar on their wall. You're lucky if they got 12 months ahead of them, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's about as far as we look forward. Even all the prophecies of the uh, Christian uh, mystics like uh, St. John of Patmos, when he wrote the book of Revelations around 95 A.D., he was actually expecting the Judgment Day to come, you know, within 10 years or so. Hmm. And so, hmm. you know, the the future, the big, you know, all of those things didn't really uh, look so far into the future. Amazing. All right, well, let's see. Uh, we got a few more minutes here, so let's continue along these same lines. The there There's a, a, a gentleman or a, a person on the uh, chat page who put up a question here that I think we should get out of the way because we sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier. And I think it's important that we address it because there is sort of a catastrophic, um, you know, a calamity sort of viewpoint that a lot of people are pushing forward. So they ask, what does John think about certain scholars and uh, futurist ideas that a catastrophic calamity viewpoint on 2012 uh, exists of 
something like our solar system passing through uh, a concentrated mm. a particular part of space or something like this. But at any rate, you know, uh, something bad happening that would destroy everything or make it very right. difficult for us. Well, part of that last reference that you just mentioned, I think, refers to the photon belt idea. Right, I think that this guy, Dr. Brooks Agnew, right? Okay, I'm not familiar with him, but the fo the photon belt idea goes back to the 80s. And uh, it, I, I feel, you know, um, I'm, I'm glad that I kind of know the background to some of these stories and how some of these ideas were introduced into New Age discourse and where they came from and how they evolved and how they all got connected up. The photon belt idea actually was uh, sort of defined, I guess, in Jose Arguez's book, The Mayan Factor, mm -hmm. came out in 1987. Right, 87. Brian Swim uh, wrote the introduction to that. And in that book, Arguez talks about this concept called galactic synchronization. This is not the same as galactic alignment, because as defined in the introduction to that book, galactic synchronization is about our solar system and its orbit around the galactic center. And this orbital period has nothing to do with precession. Mm. It's, you know, the orbit of our solar system around the galactic center takes like 280 million years. And the theory with the photon belt, at least in its one of its variations, is that our solar system passes through different density sectors of the galaxy where there's, you know, different concentration of, of uh, it can either be a, a thicker concentration of, of uh, random debris. Right, cosmic dust and this sort of thing. Or in a more cosmic sense, it could be more like a denser, denser gravity wave kind of thing going on. I mean, there there is kind of this, you know, more spiritual interpretation of what the photon belt is. Arguez himself uh, sort of, he associated it with 2012, um, in terms of this beam, the, the galactic beam that we would move into and move out of. Mm -hmm. But all of these things are, are quite murky, and the best I could sort of decipher is that this photon belt idea was um, possibly a loose sort of early intuition about the galactic alignment, except it got translated into these other terms. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not uh, our solar system does move through different uh, sectors of the galaxy, I'm sure that's that's very true. But I don't. Uh, I, I just can't see it being connected to 2012 in the sense of like what I what I've deciphered the the Mayan intention behind 2012 to be. Now, well, th this gets kind of complicated because there could be. Well, I don't really know where to go with that. Let, let, let yeah. me add something really quick, John. Sure. There's a um, there's a paper that was written around 1998, and it was done by a Russian physicist. His name was uh, Alexei Dmitriev, and it was called the Planeto Physical State of Earth and Life. And it's a really interesting, in-depth sort of physical study by this. Uh, by this doctor who worked for the Russian Academy of Sciences, right? Okay. And he he did propose that. He said that, that we were 
that, that the Earth and the solar system did move through different regions of space that had different densities of energy, et cetera, and, you know, whatever. And that makes perfect sense to me, obviously. The, 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 the universe is filled with different things, and we've never been in the same place twice. You know, we're always moving. Everything is moving. So it didn't seem counterintuitive, really, to me that, you know, we might uh, at times move into different areas of, of space that had different densities of whatever. Okay. Um, but... Uh, again, the the assumption that uh, that whatever that is that you're passing through is going to be some sort of a negative result, I I, I, I can't make that jump because the same thing, uh, you know, the, the same metaphor goes with this galactic galactic wave idea that Jose alludes to, and that Dr. Paul Laviolette uh, uh, quantifies, you know, in scientific terms. Again, that. You know, if the galactic center explodes or something and sends out a huge wave of whatever, again, right? Uh, who knows what the effect, the, the assumption that it would be a negative effect or something that would be destructive as opposed to maybe evolutionary or creative, wh- wh- why is the assumption always that it's going to be negative? Well, that's, that's great that you point that out, and uh, that's just, it's so interesting to point that out, and I think that's a, a really important, uh, you know, way to look at this it basically to and i've thought about this quite a bit it basically boils down to is the is nature basically against us or is it for us Hmm. you know in other words is nature something to be conquered and feared and overcome that is a basic fundamental bias or assumption of western science and western civilization as a whole ain't it the truth john but not all human cultures have felt that way in other words, um, evolution, is evolution something that we win, that we wrestle from the grips of, of the, the talons of the gods, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, Prometheus stealing fire from the gods or mm-hmm. something? Is, it, is evolution something we do? Is it something that we could even control? Or is evolution something that the universe is trying to do? And, and more often than not, we, we get in the way of so is nature basically a, a good thing, or I mean, this this whole ethical thing of good and bad, you know? It also goes to the question of like, okay, well, let's you know, because 2012 is like an archetype for many people of the end of the world. So that's basically death. Okay, well, what is death? Is death something to be feared or embraced? Mm. You know what I mean? So it does. The archetypal nature of this discussion just you know, invites very deep and profound meditations. Right, you know, because this whole idea of of death is, you can't get away from it without birth, you know, because you, you, you made the reference earlier about uh, interest in the end date as opposed to the beginning, perhaps, right? Uh-huh. Yet, in a human birth, or whatever, and I'm and I'm totally in tune with this right now because, as I mention every week now, because I'm so nervous about it, my wife is going to give birth in within the next couple of weeks. Oh wow! Congratulations! <laughs> Your first? Our second, actually. Okay. And uh, so anyway, we're excited about it. And I'm waiting for it, and anyway, I'm you know I'm I'm sort of in that frame of mind. But I think about uh, there was this wonderful book that was written by this guy a long time ago. It was Auto Rock, and it was called The Birth of the Myth of the Hero. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how every child in the act of birth was a hero, uh, just in the act of birth itself. 
and that the mother, of course, was a hero for pulling the whole thing off, you know. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but the way he described it was that this baby was not dead before birth. It was uh, a living creature, but it was a creature, a water creature, for example, right? Right. That lived in this environment that was uh, pretty much uh, zero gravity, had all of its needs provided for without much effort until right toward the end where it's growing and now the pressure becomes so great that it literally has no option. It must leave, right? Uh, or it will die and it will also, and the mother will die as well unless there's a separation. And so the baby is pushed out now into this world and pushes itself out into this world and it is a death of that former life. That, that pleasant water you know, the endless oceans of amniotic fluid mm. where it just floated around and had it all lovely. That's done now. Now they're kicked into this world whether they like it or not. And now it's the death of that previous self and the birth of this new one. And you can't get away from the two, I don't think. That's a great metaphor. And that metaphor is about different states of being and different planes of consciousness. Mm. And why should we think that, you know, the... the um, rupture of plane that is death should be any different yeah a death is just a rebirth somewhere else maybe you know well these things get into the you know the more metaphysical discussions and uh i've i've learned in my own sort of process of of looking at these things maybe my own path you might say uh-huh. uh that uh a lot of this for me got resolved when i discovered the uh, literature on the perennial philosophy because a lot of the things I was discovering among the Maya and the way that I was languaging it in my books, um, you know, interpreting the monuments and decoding what the obsessions of the Maya were with time and cycles and consciousness and these profound things, basically I was, you know, languaging the same fundamental principles that are found in the perennial philosophy having to do with our uh, relationship to the eternal source, you know, and these kind of things. And so, to me, that's kind of where the discussion goes in terms of talking about the metaphysics of 2012 and the spirituality of it and the spiritual teachings associated with it. Because it is a cycle ending. And uh, a cycle ending is like uh, a death, but it's also simultaneously a birth, because mm-hmm. in a cyclic time philosophy, the end is the beginning. Right, because a new cycle begins. Right. Okay, all right, look, we're just a little past the top of the hour. Let's take a breather, okay? All right. All right, we'll do it, everybody. It's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest, of course, the wonderful John Major Jenkins. You can find out information about John on the web at www.alignment2012.com. And you can also link directly uh, directly there from from uh, my site at mikehagan.com. All right. Okay, everybody. Hello and goodbye for just a couple of minutes. We'll be back in a few. This is a wonderful song by a band called Star Root. One more time, compliments of the wonderful people over there at tortuga.com. We'll be back in just a few minutes with John Major Jenkins, and we'll continue the conversation. It's Mike, you listen to Radio Orbit on the web one more time at MikeHagan.com, and of course, KOPN Columbia at KOPN.org.
That's Star Root. That's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. That's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And you're listening to it here. It's just about seven or eight minutes after the hour of one o'clock in the morning. 1300 if you're in the military. And it's the 29th of August now. Amazing. The summer is basically through. You can even feel it here in mid-Missouri. A little bit of a cool hint in the air tonight when I was walking around downtown. At any rate, uh, we have with us John Major Jenkins, and you can find information about John on the web at www.alignment2012. He's written a number of amazing books, and he's got a tremendous amount of information available uh, right there up front on his website, and I'd uh, advise that everybody go over there and take a look around. All right, All right so uh, John, thanks for sticking yeah. around with us here. Yeah, I was just going to say i got a conference coming up uh in uh, Taos, New Mexico. Wow, another beautiful place. October 8th, 9th, and 10th. So if you're, anybody's interested in that, just go to my, my webpage and check it out. What uh, What's going on down there? Well, it's a, a group of people that are going to be talking about earth changes. And mm-hmm. uh, um, the way that I see it and the way that uh, we sort of conceived of it is that uh, there's a lot of wisdom among the Native Americans as to how to deal with earth changes and it's undeniable that that the earth is that we're going through some changes here on the planet mm-hmm, I agree and uh, so there's this intimate dance between consciousness and healing and physical changes on the earth physical changes in our bodies as we age mm. you know the, all of this is related you know the microcosm reflects the macrocosm mm-hmm. so the thing that we can do is to open up to the ancient wisdom teachings and uh you know we're going to have some speakers on about that and talking about 2012 as well okay is there a connection in uh, any of the north american uh, indigenous traditions that that ties into 2012 well there is a uh not so much directly although i've always been intrigued with how uh frank waters the author 
who wrote that amazing book, uh, Mexico Mystique. Mexico Mystique, yeah. As well as another book called Mountain Dialogues. Wow. And in that book, he talked about this um, uh, initiatory practice of the, I think it was the Cheyenne Indians. I'm not quite sure on that, but uh-huh. it was called the Circle of the Law Belt. And um, it basically was this model that as a person grew through different stages in life, through these different periods of time and these years, these numbers, these, you know, number of months that you'd stay in, the, like, the first phase and then the second phase, would culminate at age 72. And hmm. so these are all, like, processional numbers. Right. It's a paradigm of based on procession. And at age 72, you would reach the point of where you'd, you'd be a no-mind. Huh. In other words, you, your mind would be clear and transparent, uh, which is really the work of the perennial philosophy. It's really the spiritual work that uh, all the great spiritual traditions um, talk about how we can um, you know, reconnect with our transcendent uh, you know, spiritual ground. Right. And the way we do that is to make our uh, identities transparent. It's not that we an- annihilate our egos or anything like that, but we make our our identity is transparent to the cosmic wisdom that's always there underneath, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this this practice is a North American Indian practice, and it, and it seems to be related to uh, processional numbers. Interesting. Well, you know, uh, I have I have a, a Lakota uh, background in my own family history, uh-huh. and I'm I'm discovering more about it uh, as I get older, and the more I learn about it, the more fascinated I am with it, and the more proud I am of it. Uh, uh, but there's a, a wonderful Lakota star cosmology. Oh yeah. That that um, that I would love to sh- to share with you because I, I, I'm sure that you would be able to point things out to me that I can't see yet. You know what I mean? Uh, but any at any rate, th- there were tremendous uh, peoples all around the Americas. What about the what about the Hopi? The Hopi as well. The you know, they have are, they have the whole Kachina right, thing yeah. and all that. Yeah, that's right. Their their material is very close to the world age doctrine with the different uh the different uh epochs and eras. Right, and the and the they even have like the fifth sun idea or something like that or the next sun. The different suns, yeah, moving through different uh domains and levels of consciousness. Right, right. I always thought that uh that La Violette's uh work really tied in with them because they talk about the blue star and that when the blue star appears, you know, that uh you know, whatever. That's when the changes might be coming. And then Paul always said, you know, that when a supernova or, or when the galactic core explodes, it will show up as a blue. It will be a blue shift. You know. Well, that's amazing. And let me launch off from that in, in a connection that uh, I think is really important to yeah, make. Yeah, please do. Well, you know, it's interesting how the outer world, you know, astronomy, the the blue star that will appear in the sky at the end of the age, that kind of thing. It it maps on to the inner psychological world, like the blue star also is something that the great Hindu uh, mystic Muktananda, he was a meditator, and he went through this whole deepening uh, practice of meditation, and the one of the goals of the meditation, when you would be just about ready to achieve enlightenment, is that you would visualize the blue pearl in the center of your third eye. Whoa. This was basically an indication that your highest chakra, your highest spiritual level, 
in your in your head was opening up. And so that's an inner psychic reality that happens at the end of the spiritual process for a uh, a yogi. And isn't it interesting then that you have this Hopi prophecy around the blue star appearing in the sky at the end of the age? So you, you start to wonder whether, well, you know, basically it's not that surprising because one of the fundamental principles of the perennial philosophy is, is basically as above, so below. The microcosm reflects the macrocosm. Right. So everything is moving along the same path, even though it's, you know, it's different, but at the same, it's the same, and it's just. One of the primary differences is simply scale. Yeah, yeah. In other words, the Earth is evolving into something new. Individuals are. The solar system is. The galaxy is. What? The inner world the is inner a reflection world. of the outer world. And so, getting back to your question about, you know, were, are there things among the North American Indians that relate to the uh, 2012 cosmology? Well, mm -hmm. I, I think uh, a, a real meaningful answer to that is that... Uh, what is 2012 about? You know, it, to me, it's about um, a uh, transformation of consciousness that will put our, our that will put us back into connection with the transcendent cosmic wisdom. So it's a kind of uh, transformation and renewal. And, and you know, the astronomy. Uh, is, re is a reflection of that. The galactic alignment is a connection of that. After all, it's a it's an alignment with the center of our Milky Way galaxy, which could be seen as maybe the great blue pearl in the sky or something right. like that. Right. But the point is that the, a lot of these spiritual traditions, they've mastered the inner psychological or spiritual work that you know um, speaks clearly to what human beings can do during these uh, cycle-ending periods. Right. It's, man, it's amazing, John, because I think about uh, the sun, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm one of these guys that really watches the sun a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And, again, um, in science or whatever, when they, when they report solar flares and this sort of, you know, activity on the sun, it, there's always a negative bent on it. Uh -huh. it you know, it's always that the flares are somehow going to destroy everything, you know, mm -hmm. if they were powerful enough. And certainly I'm sure that that's, that's probably possible, right? But I also think that, you know, the sun is the sun. I mean, it's the source of life. It's the source of everything that, that exists on this planet, basically, right? Yeah. And, in the, and, and now again, if we apply our, our, our scale model that we've been talking about, this you know, the, the fact that things are similar all throughout what we're, you know, the whole picture, mm -hmm. the, then the central sun, you know, the cosmic center or the, or the galactic center, that becomes a sun too. And so, again, I apply the same metaphor that, you know, it's the life force of the galaxy right there. It, it, it provides everything that keeps everything going. And at the same time, I'm sure, I'm sure that it might be able to, uh, if it, decided to or whatever, you know, or if it had an event happen, it could probably be destructive too, but it just doesn't have to be the de facto answer. Right. And it seems to me that uh, the human interest in uh, the sun, you know, the, the like, let, okay, let's just look at this. It's, pre it's pretty interesting. Human beings are, you know, waving their arms around the solar flares on the sun, or 
like let's say with Paul Laviolette's theory with the uh, super wave that mm-hmm. emanates out from the galactic center. Right, right. And there, there's evidence that galaxies do go into this hyperactive mode. They're called the Seifert uh, galaxies. Seifert or Seifert. And uh, okay. but but the 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 collective consciousness, let's say, is expecting there to be an explosion of energy from the central source. Let's say, well, okay, now let's go back to that as above, so below thing. Is this some kind of a premonition or an anticipation that the the great source and fount of all life and, and manifest existence that exists as the deepest central core of each one of us, hmm. like the central core of our souls and our psyches, yeah. is about to explode and send its divine wisdom and energy out into uh, into the human world, into culture and civilization? And are we about to experience a, uh, a renewal, a great renaissance of uh, in, in which, you know, we'll be able to redefine uh, culture? Mm-hmm. These things have happened before, the great renaissance of the... Uh, of the 16th century, the Italian Renaissance, sure. so it was a great explosion of, of uh, you know, new ideas, and, and maybe what we're approaching is uh, is something akin to that. But it but it happens from within and flows outward into the world, rather than uh, happening, you know, from above with asteroids raining down on us or something like that. That's at least my particular bias about it. Right, and 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 the point is that. That's as good as any. I mean, it's a it, it it's as valid as any because we can say that these things are going to happen, and we can say that things are going to happen in the sky, and we can say that alignments are going to happen, and we can say that we're going to pass through this space or that space, we can say that the galaxy is going to explode, but we can't say what the effect is going to be. We just can't because it's not a deterministic universe. It's a free will universe, and. What happens is ultimately up to how we as individuals respond. Ha-ha. You know, ask, you ask ten people who are 90 years old, what was life about? Mm-hmm. You know, and you'll get ten different answers perhaps, but they'll probably fall into two broad categories. One, basically it sucked and I can't wait to check out. And <laughs> the other is that it was a wonderful uh, thing. Amazing. All right, well, let, let's... Um we got a few more minutes before we take another break. So we we pretty much established that uh, that these things that have been represented in stone and in writing and in all kinds of different mythologies are actually going to happen. There, there, there's signs in the heavens, as we've been told, to look for. And the Maya, they knew about it, they cared about it, and for some reason, they they cared about it far beyond their own culture's existence or, or, or survival. So, you know, you, we've been talking about all the things that, you know, maybe not all, but certainly some of the little ideas and potential uh, scenarios that we might come up with. What what do you think they thought? Well, I, I believe that they had uh, tuned into or discovered a, a cosmological insight or principle that has to do with astronomy. It has to do with these alignments to the galaxy. It's an, it's an insight into how the... Uh, the universe is wired up and how we as conscious beings on this planet are related to these these changes. So from that vantage point, it's almost like the Maya were tuned into a knowledge or an understanding 
of how human beings are related to the universe and time and cycles in which we are embedded on this planet. They had an understanding about these things that is light years, centuries beyond the Copernican revolution, you know, like in the 16th century when Copernicus, you know, put forward the heliocentric model right. and that revolutionized things and uh, modern science is basically an outgrowth of that. Well, the Maya, 2,000 years ago, they... They had tuned into this this in, this piece of information that perhaps our own science has been moving towards plottingly, unfortunately, but uh, <laughs> but that but some human culture would uh, eventually um, come to again because it is a true insight into the way that the world is is uh, is uh, organized and basically, I think. To answer your question, the bottom line is that the universe is trying to evolve us. Mm -hmm. And this is what 2012 is about. It's about uh, a reconnection with our cosmic heart and source. You know, the alignment to the galactic center is the physical component of that in the, in the visible sky. Right. Um, but it's also, uh, and, and so be, because of that, though, it has to do with our free will in our relationship to that and whether we're going to be open to the universe trying to evolve us or succumb to the sort of, uh, you know, fear-based, um, negative, lowest common denominator kind of interpretations of, of this kind of thing. You know, I, I have a chapter in my book, Galactic Alignment, called uh, Cosmogenesis or Catastrophe. Right. And I think that... Uh, it, it speaks to this idea that it's uh, it's a free will universe and how we relate to change throughout our lives or in 2012, whatever 2012 means to a person, um, will determine where consciousness goes. You know, John, when we talk about evolution, do you do you consider it in a in a in, in sort of a Darwinian sense, even in other words, to me, partly it seems like if we if we look at it from a Darwinian or evolutionary standpoint, we're we're monkeys, we're we're a type of ape, you know, and if we look at what we think we know about this, apes don't really do much unless they get put under a lot of pressure, <laughs> and they sort of kick back and really don't react much until the, until the heat gets turned on. And when the heat gets turned on, then the smart apes tend to make make a jump of some sort or whatever. Mm -hmm. is, it, is, it, is it at that level too, do you think, perhaps? In other words, that we might as individuals be responsible or have a hand in our own evolution? Well, that, this is where I, um, I plug into the, the great insights of the perennial wisdom because I've, I've struggled with uh, evolutionary questions and so on and, and thought about these things from different perspectives. And when I discovered the writings of various perennial philosophers like uh, Syed Hossein Nasser wrote an amazing book called Knowledge and the Sacred. And he's really just speaking for the, uh, the perennial wisdom that uh, other authors like Houston Smith mm -hmm. or even Aldous Huxley mm -hmm. Aldous Huxley wrote an amazing introduction to 
the Bhagavad Gita in the 1950s, and he laid out the perennial philosophy in this beautiful way. And basically, from this perennial perspective, evolution, the evolutionary theory, is kind of an absurdity, because it basically proposes that new things emerge out, higher things emerge out of lower things. Mm -hmm. And so there's this kind of bottoms-up sort of approach to how change occurs in the universe, that higher forms can evolve out of lower forms without the intervention of any kind of of higher dimensional space is is kind of an absurdity and and I can't really do it justice in a in a in a in a brief conversation mm -hmm. but people should look up uh you know the perennial philosophy there's different websites and and so on that'll lay it out but basically it's I think it's a better way of thinking about evolution, that all evolution happens uh, from above. It happens through an opening of a person or a culture or a civilization to the transforming influence of a higher dimensional uh, wisdom. Huh. And, and that's very true. I mean, when you look at, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the birth of a religion or the birth of a civilization, there was usually this incredibly transformative period when new revelations came in, like things that nobody could have predicted as a result of some kind of, you know, uh, predictable evolutionary-like kind of process. Right. You know, it's actually like something totally radical and different came down from above. Right, and yeah. I think it's it's also really interesting that, like all systems whether it's a chemical system or a biological system or uh, a subatomic system, the change always seems to begin, though, with one, whether it's an individual atom or an uh. individual molecule or an individual person. Mm -hmm. And then from there, it seems to, you know, institutions and that sort of stuff come later. You know, but it usually right. comes with an idea or something from one an individual in the system, and 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 then it, and then it creates, you know, it's the butterfly effect thing, right? Oh, right, yeah. And it's real. I mean, this um, there's a wonderful teacher of mine whose name is Joseph Chilton Pierce. Uh -huh. And, and uh, one of the things that Joe, one of the first things that that I learned from him was that he talked about um, systems uh, in equilibrium versus systems in disequilibrium, right? And he said, you know, when you have a system in equilibrium, whether it's a chemical system or a social system or, you know, any sort of system, uh, systems in equilibrium are strong. And it takes, relatively speaking, a tremendous amount of energy to shift them out of equilibrium, right? Mm -hmm. And conversely, if you have a system that is in disequilibrium, a very, very small amount of energy uh, directed in any particular vector can bring about a completely new equilibrium that was completely unpredictable and unexpected. And and that's where, and then he points out, like our culture and our society and says, you know, we are in that sort of unpredictable state right now in disequilibrium, even though the leaders and everyone else would tell us that everything's under control. It's completely out of everyone's control right now. And therefore, the smallest amount in the right particular angle or whatever, you know, can bring about this entire shift. And it's a, it's a, a wonderful, scientifically valid way to look at the thing, you know. 
And is it a conscious process? Like we as elements of the culture that's undergoing this this uh, dance between equilibrium and, and uh, transformation, um, we can consciously direct it. And I think that the place where the, the most change can occur is, is when you look at our culture today, for example, I mean, we, we are in this place of uh, kind of an extreme sort of position. I think there's a lot of uh, closed energy around, um, like, say, uh, uh, initiatory thinking, you know, the idea that our consciousness can open up and move in a, in a vertical way uh, to... A higher dimensional wisdom. This is basic perennial philosophy stuff, but it flies in the face of modern scientific materialism and mm -hmm. and also a kind of cultural nihilism, which right. which thinks that everything's relative. You know, one person's belief is equal to another person's belief, and and sure, in an egalitarian culture, there's there's some truth to that, but there's also this. Uh, you know, I guess basically what I'm trying to get to is that. Uh, if you if you look back at other cultures in the past that got stuck, but they successfully grabbed hold of something like that seed point that you were talking about, like something took hold mm -hmm. and it got nurtured in a conscious way, it's it's usually a case of an ancient wisdom mm -hmm. that gets reintroduced, like the way that the Italian Renaissance. Uh, was triggered by the translations of Plato coming through from the Islamic, uh, wow. from the Persian mystics, you know. Wow. Wow. And, and so it, the transformation occurred uh, when when the ancient wisdom was uh, re-embraced, revived. Right. And, I, and I, in some strange way, I feel like my work with the Mayan cosmology or the Mayan wisdom is offering something to. Uh, uh, the stuckness of, of modern culture. It, it, it like speaks to a blind spot in modern science. And, and certainly a lot of modern you know, scientists have been resistant to even taking a, a very good look at what the Maya, according to my pioneering research, have had achieved 2,000 years ago because it threatens the superiority complex of modern science. And yet it provides something that could be the most amazing insight into evolutionary process in, in, in the universe that human beings have ever come up with. Right, and that science should have great interest in. You'd think so. You'd think so. All right, look, John, let's take one more short one here, okay? All right. And uh, I'm going to go grab a sip of water, and we'll have about three minutes, and we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about what's going on. We'll talk maybe a little bit about the video with Jay and... Um, I have a couple questions that have popped up on the uh, in the chat room. In the sure, community. I love questions. Yeah, so we'll we'll do that in just a few minutes, okay? Great. All right, back in just one more uh, short break here with John Major Jenkins on the web www.alignment2012.com, and you can always link over there from MikeHagan.com. It is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, and it's about 1:33 uh, in the morning on the 29th of uh, August, okay? We're going to play a quick song here by Resonant Sun. It's called Mystical Column. We'll come back in just a few minutes with John Major Jenkins and we'll uh, finish things off with uh, what's going to happen in the future here. Alright? It's Mike. One more time. Radio Orbit. Back in just a few. Somewhere in Orbit. 
I reside in the center of the mystical calm. I solemnly swear to make art with the given air. I breathe a weak balance. Like Adam and Eve, polar opposite. But what is the cause of it? Some people call it the Hunab Koo. It spits out a vibe like a didgeridoo. It emanated me as well as you. Your mama and your whole damn breakdance crew. Yo, what the devil gonna do when he makes a move? Try to separate me from the frequency. You gotta be free in harmony. Align your spine with the galaxy. Excite your light capacity. Then enter to the center heart energy. You hear a rainbow MC currently. But I'm only one moment in eternity. I reside in the center of the mystical column. I solemnly swear to make art with the given air. I breathe a weave balance. Like Adam and Eve, polar opposite. But what is the cause of it? The mystic column depicted by 20 tribes. From a niche at the bottom all the way to the sunny side. A.K.A. Kenichahau. The solar master. Limitless bliss. Sun-kissed persistence. Resident consciousness. The mind of light. Igniting flight. Aurora borealis in the night. Light singularly moves through the spine. Elevating intrinsic awareness. The mystic resonant mirror of time. Foundation space with reason and rhyme. Now school. Self-existing will define. From the center of focus. No hocus pocus. Galactic councils. The locus. Quotus. We reside in the center of the mystical calm. We solemnly swear to make art with the given air. We breathe. We weave balance. Like Adam and Eve. On the opposite. But what is the cause of it? Star Wars. Metaphors for trap doors. Interface. With the race of space shapes. In a case. They said open the gates. With mental states. Certain solar star dates. Mike, you listen to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia. And uh, we've got about 23 minutes left in the program here. We're not going to waste any more time. We'll get right back to it with John Major Jenkins. And we've got a couple of questions here, John, that have uh, popped up over the last hour or so. And I'll start with this one, okay? You mentioned earlier, well, I, I called it a window, but at any rate, you mentioned that uh, 1980 to 2016 seemed to be significant, this period of time. Okay, uh, this person asked a question about a connection between that and the Hende Cross research that Jay Widener and Vincent Bridges brought forth. And do you have a position on their work and whether it's related? And again, uh, right? You know, if you have thoughts about that. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's really a good connection there. Um, I've uh, really been interested in in the work of other researchers 
especially in regards to the galactic alignment uh, question. It seemed to me that uh, the galactic alignment uh, was such a compelling thing. I mean, the, the sun moving into alignment with the Milky Way, and there's other features involved in that, too, that really lend themselves very nicely to uh, uh, mythic symbols and religious symbols and metaphysical symbols. Uh, for example, the cross in the sky is the cross formed by the Milky Way and the ecliptic. And this, of course, this is the Mayan sacred cross as well. Now, it was really, really uh, amazing to me back in uh, 98, right after my book, My Cosmogenesis, came out, that uh, I got a call from a guy named Jay Widener. Mm -hmm. And uh, ironically, he was working uh, about five miles away from where I was living in Colorado at the time. And uh, he had uh, found my book, and we had a long, long talk. And he was working on research about the enigmatic French philosopher called Fulcanelli. Fulcanelli, yeah. Yeah, and this yeah. has to do with alchemical mysteries, mm -hmm. the mysteries of alchemy. Right. And there's a very enigmatic, strange monument in a, a town called Hende in southern France, and there's alchemical symbol, symbols on it, and there's this larger mystery that Jay and his co-author, Vincent Bridges, uh, explored. And they were working on this fascinating book, tracing uh, ancient alchemical secrets among the Egyptians and uh, hmm. uh, esoteric astronomy and this underground stream of wisdom that came through from Egypt into Greece and then into uh, Europe to manifest in, in like uh, alchemy and tarot card symbolism. Right, and the cathedral building and all that. Yeah, and, and their work uh, really helped me understand how this galactic alignment material that I was finding among the Maya half a world away was uh, a central core idea in uh, in a secret metaphysics that uh, existed in ancient times in Egypt and continued to be followed among secret esoteric schools throughout European history. Yeah, it's amazing because the um, they they also sort of talk about this. They call it in the book. I think they call it the season uh, of. Actually, I think they use the word catastrophe. I'm not sure if that the was season the season of word. apocalypse. Of apocalypse, yeah, and it's and again, it's this. It's a little bit shorter of a time frame, but I think it's from '92 until 2012. 12. Uh -huh. They have a 20-year sort of time frame, uh, but again, it falls right within the same. It falls exactly within the same window that you mentioned earlier. So uh, again, it's from from completely left field, but something another one that just falls right in the, in there with it. And there's a lot of uh, information that uh, is emerging about 2012 that is completely independent of uh, talking about about it from the vantage point of the Maya. Like what? Well, Jeff Stray, um, yeah, yeah. researcher in England, uh, he wrote a book uh, called Beyond 2012. It's based upon his uh, incredible website. Diagnosis, yeah. Diagnosis 2012, yeah. And uh, he's been collecting stories from people, visions. Um, uh, it's basically a pavilion of, of all things 2012. Right. And his work, uh, basically, because of the, the profound uh, 
uh, phenomenon of 2012 itself seems to indicate that it's either grabbed hold on a level of the collective unconscious such that people are manifesting these things, or there is an actual sort of energy pulse going on uh, with the biosphere that people are picking up on that, sensitive people are picking up on that, and and that 2012 does seem to be a target for some kind of a some kind of a change. Right, and you know maybe it's a a wave sort of phenomenon, like so many things are, and you know there's certain there's always certain individuals again whatever sort of system it is that are sort of at the front of the wave and then maybe the wave maybe the wave wave breaks in 2012 you know what i mean or or crests or something like that possibly i maybe i'm a party pooper or something but i i don't uh, put a lot of uh, faith in the uh, sudden change idea mm-hmm. the, you know december 21st rolls around and we will all be gazing at the uh, rising sun or something i suppose that could be a kind of uh, collective spiritual experience, if we if we willed it to be as such. Um, I, I just don't. Uh, it just doesn't seem realistic to think of it in that way. That's why, because because my work identifies this galactic alignment, and to me that seems to be the visible signifier of a big change. And it's it it does occur in the physical universe, and after all, I'm trying to put something on the table here for scholars to look at and for scientists to look at. And I think it's a pretty profound thing to be able to anchor the Mayan prophecy and spiritual teaching about cycle endings to an actual empirical uh, thing, something as profound as the galactic alignment. And, and uh, Jay and Vincent's book, uh, The Cross at Hende, uh, really... Uh, makes us understand uh, how this idea of galactic alignment is embedded right. like a lost artifact inside of um, our own history of science and religion. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I pursued in, in my follow-up book to Maya Cosmogenesis, Galactic Alignment, came out in 2002. I, I pursued this question in looking at uh, other ancient traditions, uh, Mithraism and mm. uh, all kinds of things, and finding that these concepts are at the core of the perennial philosophy, basically going back to, you know, way back to the ancient Vedic uh, civilization. Yeah, I mean, you find that, that, that such a, uh, a parallel in the Indian culture. You mentioned the Yuga cycles earlier, but boy, that's one that's really profound. Yeah, and, and the, the the reason why today. All of this is fragmented into, you know, barely recognizable pieces is because of the the, the cycles of time. And, and this is uh, a Hindu insight, really. You see it in the Yuga doctrine that um, in this great year of procession, there are two phases. One is the phase of increasing light and one is the phase of increasing darkness, mm. all cycles in nature obey this kind of thing, you know, from the day cycle to the month to the year. And we've been in this particular phase in which we've been moving towards increasing darkness. That's why the Hindus say that right now we are in the age of Kali Yuga, the Iron Age, the age of the greatest spiritual darkness. We've forgotten all the divine wisdom that human beings used to be in contact with uh, many thousands of years ago. 
And that, that too, flies in the face of modern science's myth of progress, which is basically that, you know, throughout human history, we've been on this steadily increasing sort of thing. But nature just doesn't work like that. Look around at the cycles of nature. It's just not wired up like that. Right. And, you know, when we look at the monuments in South America, uh, only a blind person could not see tremendous sophistication in whoever it was that built those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that alone... Uh, and, you know, I, I spoke with this gentleman uh, a couple of weeks ago. His name was Christopher Dunn. Oh, sure, yeah. Right? And, uh, gosh, I mean, he, he makes it really clear that whatever was happening um, in these cultures that were building these mega, megalithic structures with stones that are just you know, outrageous to, to, to imagine working, you know, uh, that, that there was certainly a tremendous amount of, of intelligence and, and uh, some sort of technology at work, whether it's the same as the way we might describe it, maybe not, but certainly much more than meets the eye was going on there. And he's an engineer and very qualified to oh, make these man. assessments oh. of the machining te- uh, tolerance and of, of the various stone blocks that he looks oh, at. yeah, it's amazing. Quite astounding, and I would also say that too, not not to limit the discussion to the technological achievements of the ancients, which is interesting. But I think also there was uh, the consciousness. Mm-hmm. The consciousness was uh, in touch with um, the higher dimensional wisdom. Mm-hmm. That might sound sort of obscure to to listeners. Uh, but I think that's what uh, this is all about. It's about uh, the challenge of reconnecting our own uh, consciousnesses, the limited consciousness that we have embodied in, in, you know, as we are in these lives. And uh, that's really the uh, goal of all human existence, is to put ourselves back into right relationship with the divine source. And I think a lot of the problems that we, we have today in the world are a result of our culture being out of touch with uh, the divine source couldn't agree more i couldn't agree more all right look one more uh before we uh sort of finish up and we'll talk about uh what we've got going on i want to mention the video for sure and if you have any books or anything that you'd like to mention we'll do that in just a second but we have one more question that i wanted to to, uh, uh make sure we ask you uh do you have a position or an opinion on this crystal skull Phenomenon. You know anything about that? The well, crystal the crystal skulls, skulls are um, artifacts that apparently the ancient Maya used in a mystical sense. Uh, my friend Marty Matz, in fact, uh, he's co-author with me of Pyramid of Fire, right. a book that we did together, and he was an antiquities collector, and, and he had collected some of these crystal skulls, and he had told me that a lot of these crystal skulls are um, in museums, and they basically can't do anything with them when they're in museums because, according to him, they had to be uh, the. They're basically information storage devices, mm-hmm. or they can be. And in a, uh, a shamanistic sense or a mystical sense, the information can be released. Uh, that's what he told me. Wow. Now I don't know the whole. I don't really have a handle on the whole legend of the 12 skulls that must be brought together and then you know it's I, I really don't know the whole story right, on that right, neither do I neither do I okay 
but certainly another question mark for sure. Yeah. And they're wonderful. I mean, I mean, the ones that I've seen, at least the images I've seen, they look amazing. I mean, I don't know. I mean, just the, the, the way that they appear to be manufactured or whatever seems to be pretty, uh, pretty interesting in and of itself. That is astounding, yeah. So, anyway, okay, so um, uh, Odyssey 2012. That's, uh, Jay's going to do a final edit, I think, and they're getting really close to releasing the official version of that. What, what's your opinion on, 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 your, uh, on the final well, thing? I mean, you had a big part in it. Well, I'm really glad for uh, what uh, Sacred Mysteries, uh, Sharon Rose and uh, Jay Widener are doing. Um, they've produced an amazing documentary on uh, 2012, and they've framed it as an odyssey of discovery. And they've interviewed many people, uh, like myself and, uh, let's see, Greg Braden, Jose Arguez, Jeff Stray, um, people that are doing this cutting-edge research into and talking about the 2012 uh, date. Mm-hmm. And the documentary really raises the bar on the discussion because, you know, I think that the, the media outlets are going to have a field day with this whole thing, and there's going to be a very, very superficial level of the presentation that I'm sure it's already happening now and it's going to continue right up through 2012 so people have to dig a little deeper if they want to get into the real stuff because there's going to be a lot of noise and there's going to be a lot of sensationalism and so I would very much recommend uh, this DVD and it's going to get theater release too Oh, it's great! It's and gonna it's gonna get a lot of it's gonna get a lot of uh, traction. I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. It raises the bar, and it really defines what can be done with this whole discussion. And there's a lot there to explore. You know, um, it, it's quite amazing to me that after 12 years now, I've been talking about Izaba, mm. the origin place of the 2012 calendar. And the amazing prophecy and spiritual teachings that can be found there on the carved monuments of Azapa. And I've been talking about that for 12 years. That's the core of my rap. And uh, most people still don't make a connection between Azapa and 2012. Hmm. So, the, you know, I think it's, uh, oh, I don't know, it's a, it's a question of uh, how we frame the discussion because... Um, there's a lot of independent researchers that don't aren't really very well grounded in the fundamentals, and they they feel free to sort of invent their own systems and models, and uh, that can be compelling, and it can, you know, you can come up with some pretty cool stuff, you know, but my whole value system revolves around reconstructing the authentic original teachings, mm-hmm. and through doing that, it's not just some kind of stiff academic exercise. Through doing that, we actually access the perennial wisdom that lies at the heart of the 2012 revelation. Amazing. All right, John, I think that's a great place to, uh, to wrap it up. And uh, as always, it, it only took about five minutes to do two hours. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was uh, very enjoyable. I really appreci- appreciate it. Uh, what you're doing and uh, the discussions that we have. Well, I I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't return the favor more. It's uh, it's been a pleasure as always talking to you, and we'll definitely do it again. And we're going to talk with uh, Jeff Stray as a matter of fact on Sunday, 
and then uh, Jay's going to be on the air next Monday, so we'll we'll have uh, a good dose of all this stuff for people, and we'll uh, you know, and people are people love uh, hearing about it. I get great um, response from the shows that that we do together, and that uh, and that I do with with Jay and some of these other people, and so uh, it's definitely re- resonating out there, John, and I think. You know, more power to it because it's a it's a mystery and it's a, a a wonderful thing that we can even anticipate it. You know, it's a grassroots phenomenon, I think, too, because it's a it's a phenomenon that everybody can uh, participate in. Right, right. You don't have to be anything special to to participate in it. Just the way it should be. Exactly. All right, man. Great. Thanks again, and uh, we'll talk real soon. And in the meantime, uh, one more time, John Major Jenkins at uh, alignment2012.com. All right, John, thanks one more time. Thank you, Mike. Take care of yourself, all right? Okay. Okay, everybody, there you have it. That's John, and as always, a big thanks to him, and we will have him back as uh, soon as it makes sense for everybody to do it. And uh, thanks again to John for doing the show tonight. All right, it's Mike, and you're listening to KOPN. It's Radio Orbit. We've got about five minutes left here. Next week, as I said, Jay Widener will be with us on Monday night, but we'll be doing that special webcast on noon, uh, I should say on Sunday at noon, with uh, Jeff Stray. And that'll be a webcast. It won't be live on uh, on the traditional radio here, but we will have it broadcast live over CosmicWavesRadio.com. Uh, all right? Okay, so thanks, for everyone, for being here. Goodbye to everybody who's been listening over the web and uh, uh, sharing their thoughts and uh, having some fun conversation with us over there on the chat page in the chat room. And I appreciate everybody who participates in the show, as always. All right, and here's a wonderful piece of music to wrap things up. It's called Return of the Maya. It's uh, performed by a band called Book of Kin. And one last time, thanks to the people over at Tortuga.com for making this music available uh, for the show tonight. It's Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit on the web, MikeHagan.com. We'll talk to you all next week.
Brighter than 1,000 suns from nuclear explosions New pattern redemption the holonomic order Where the borders are bigger Where it goes to go bigger The invisible academy is studying hard life Holographic bands who encompass galactic horizons New blue sun and out answers in equations V equals MC squared plus one Watch it come Planetary art network, yet to work on the advent of the newest sphere. Let's get to work and form activation groups. Fluidly manage to move through the waves, spell attracting ways to weave the new wicker. Co-creating ways through the loom of Maya. This book of kin, I Ching, underlying structure of all things we live in to undermine time as money. To replace this irregular measure with an understanding of frequency. How often do you occur synchronicity and how do we increase this? Occurrence to answer this is what the Mayans came here for And why they will return to us To bring it down Thirteen moons means a body in tune Twelve months means we might just die soon Thirteen moons means the human race is in time Twelve months means a race against time Thirteen moons empowers children of the new paradigm Twelve months leaves our children crying Thirteen moons open the doors of perception Twelve months perpetuates alienation Encoded energetic signatures When decrypted reads Pekka Olsen was here Emissary representing the human beings Who track time over millions of years Kim was in tune within Katoon Within Bakhtun and so on And so on Culminating Civilization, be advised, be advised, be advised, be advised, the return of the Mayan, time, science, and civilization.